I'm Euro. I'm Chris. And this is Fork Bomb. Thursday, November 9th, 2017, episode 18, Atari 8-Bit Computers. I know it's been a while that uh, we've been, uh, well, since our last podcast, Chris has had a lot to do, and I have had a lot to do, and, well, noticeably, Eric is missing, but that's because he has a lot, a lot to do. So, we're all doing a lot. You got a new house. Congratulations. Thanks. Uh, Haven't moved in yet. Uh, but that might delay the next podcast episode because I'll be moving. And uh, my other thing is I actually sold my current house and it took approximately two days to sell it. Yep. From putting it up on the market to somebody giving me an offer, two days. That's it. Double congratulations. Yeah, thanks. That uh, that was way, way faster than I was anticipating. Way faster. But I'm so glad that it's going this fast because I really, really want to want to get past this. In our absence, I have gotten not one, but two AWS certifications. Ooh, nice. Man, you're going to be in the clouds soon. Working on number three as we, uh, well, not as we speak, but currently. That's awesome, man. You tell them. You you build your own cloud. You you make your own AWS. <laughs> yeah, CWS. Yeah, it's amazing what uh, disgust and hatred of the job market in Orlando can motivate you to do. Um, well, uh, it, uh, it's been different for me, um, in that, uh, I recently got promoted to manager and, um, now I manage people, uh, which is, uh, really interesting, but, uh, I like it and, uh, I kind of wanted it anyway. So I'm, uh, I'm happy that it happened, but I just have a lot of changes in my life right now, all at the same time. So, uh, I'm just trying to, trying to pull through doing it all at the same time. Point is, uh, future episodes might be a bit spotty, but we're at least going to make it to number 20. Oh, at least. At least. Uh, we're, we are committed, so. And you should mandate that the people that you manage listen to Fork Bomb. <laughs> or else. Or else. <laughs> nice job you have here. It would be a shame if something happened to it. Yeah. What did we talk about in that episode 18? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, Atari 8-Bit Computers. Um, I've been reading a lot about Atari 8-Bit Computers because I... I really like them. Um, basically, that whole era of early computing really fascinates me. So, um, unfortunately, I never really owned one. Uh, I never really had an Atari 8-bit computer or even an Atari ST. So, no 16-bit computers either for me. Uh, actually, no Atari computer whatsoever. The only Atari, uh, the, the only Atari I had was, um, it wasn't the 2600. It was a later model. I want to say it was a 70-something hundred. It looked like a small triangle-looking pyramid thing. Anyway, um, I'll look it up. Uh, not important right now for the show. So I've been doing a lot of research on the Atari 8-bit, and I'm I'm quite fascinated by these machines, actually. Um, so, Chris, did you ever have an Atari uh, 8-bit computer, 16, or even one of the uh, consoles? My cousin had a 2600. Um it was my first introduction to video games, and I believe I was f- five when mm. I first saw it. Do um, you remember the first game you saw? Pac-Man. Really? Wow. Uh, mine was um, a ship blowing up stuff, but it was a vertical side-scrolling ship, 
and I'm sure somebody will be able to give me the name of it. I also can't think of the name. Space Harrier? No, not Space Harrier. That's Yu Suzuki and Shenmue and Awesomeness. But yeah, it wasn't that. Um, forgot the name, but yeah, vertical side-scrolling ship blowing up stuff. Um, but I actually had never seen an Atari 8-bit home computer before. Um, Nor I. I do have uh, some facts about the machines. They were uh, they were built in 1979, and they actually lasted all the way to 1992. And all of these machines had the same MOS 6502 CPU clocked in at 1.79 megahertz. Um, that is a long time to... Yeah. Yeah. That is a like, very long time to have We're up machine. until the 486 days, and those things are still selling? Yes. Uh, so a year later, in 1993, the Pentium came out, and I believe they were they were clocked in at... Uh, I think the early Pentiums were at 60 megahertz. So yeah, but they were still selling those uh, 1.79 megahertz machines until 1992, which is just mind-boggling. Well, I guess it's no more mind-boggling than... Um... The Thai 83 Plus calculator still costing $100, still being sold today. Still, still. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so these computers, they were the they were pretty much the first home computers with custom coprocessor chips. And I'll go into them a little bit later. But they had a combination of the CPU with a custom coprocessor, which enabled graphics and sounds that were way more advanced than the machines at the time. So uh, most notably the Apple II and the Commodore PET. What do these coprocessor chips do? So, okay, I guess I'll go into it now. The one was called the, oh boy, let me remember, the C, CTIA, the CTIA, Color Television Interface Adapter. And it works with the Antic, or the Alpha Numerica Television Interface Controller to produce graphics. So basically the CTIA would handle the sprites, so the foreground graphics, and the Antic would render the bitmaps, what uh, Atari liked to call the background, or uh, I think they called it the play field, I believe. So, um, and actually the foreground was something like uh, missiles. They, they called it something uh, funny like that, too. So those are the two chips um, for graphics. And then they actually had a third chip called the Pokey. And um, that one would actually handle all of the sound. So in layperson terms... It has dedicated chips to handle graphics and sound, so that way the CPU doesn't have to do it, thus resulting in better graphics and better sound than will be capable with that CPU alone. Yeah, that's right. It would it would offload all of that to those specific uh, chips. So, you know, I can see the 1.79 megahertz being able to handle, to be able to handle, you know, the, the OS and uh, system calls, but... Uh, the graphics and sound were handled by individual hardware, custom chipsets. So, yeah, I, I can see why why these machines ran the way they did. They didn't need that fast of the CPU. You know, another interesting thing was that there were uh, the two first units that were built were codenamed Candy and Colleen. And so, guess why they called them that? Secretaries, right? Atari secretaries. Uh, attractive ones, I'm sure. Um, and yes, they... Uh, they, they actually did have two, uh, the, the two main differences actually to these machines were pretty much marketing. Uh, so Colleen was marketed as a, as a full-blown computer and Candy was more of a, like a game machine. Um, Colleen had expansion slots for RAM and ROM, monitor output, and Candy, it was just decided to make it a children's computer. So it had this liquid spill-proof keyboard, this membrane 
almost. And it was uh, it was difficult to type. I actually saw watched some YouTube's people <laughs> typing on it, and it was just it was a nightmare. So you you couldn't really even type that fast. So I'm I'm, I'm guessing those were the code names. What were the official names when they launched the uh, first two Atari 8-bit models? Yep. So Candy was the Atari 400, and Colleen was a Atari 800. You know, one thing that I liked about Atari was that they were very progressive in their marketing. I mean, these machines, they were made, they made them so easy to use for everybody. You didn't have to be an electrical engineer to use it. So they had, they used cartridges uh, to enclose memory. Um, They had keyed connectors to prevent people from plugging into the wrong slot. I mean, they were, they were pretty much idiot proofing the entire machine, which is great. It's good design. Um, The OS boots automatically and loads all the drivers from devices on the serial bus. Um, You didn't have to load anything by hand. And, uh... The DOS system for managing storage was menu-driven. I mean, that's... And this is 1979. So, I, I, I really... Oh, another one, too, was... Uh, so, when you had no software that was loaded, the OS went to MemoPad, which was a typewriter program instead of a blank screen. The design was very user-driven. And um, and I really like that. And I think that people learned from Atari. Chris, I know you had a lot of time playing some games. Tell me a little bit about all the games. I, uh, most of the research that I did was based on, on, uh, technical stuff. And, uh, I did a lot of, uh, video research, uh, but I know you had actual hands-on experience with, with, uh, these games. So, um, what was noteworthy about them? So you went above and beyond with the, uh, te- technical research. Um, thanks again for that. So to make up for it, I decided I would not never having, never having seen a physical Atari APA computer, I decided to play with an emulator, um, simply called Atari 800. That's the name of the emulator, and it accurately, at least it looks accurate, accurately emulates the Atari 800 model. And got a ROM pack of a bunch of games, and looked up um, a few top 10, top 20 lists. And the first one on most of those lists is Star Raiders, which came out in... 1979 and supposedly was the title responsible for shifting more Atari 400 slash 800 machines than any other game and it's known for being the um, the grandfather of the elite style space opera type of free roaming um, space video games and the when you first started the graphics look I mean terrible they're just blocks and you have a crosshair and you can shoot pixelated single color uh missile energy beams of some sort and at first all i could figure out was well i can move and i can shoot and every every once in a while i'll see an asteroid and i can shoot the asteroid and if i don't shoot it it'll hit me but then i was like this this can't be it there's there's got to be more to it and then i remembered oh yeah there's no tutorial mode i've got to look up the manual the menu. So I, so I searched around, found the instructions, and it turns out this game is really, really deep. And so after looking up the uh, manual, I um, I discovered there was a whole uh, a galactic map that you can look up, and it would show you squares where you would have different kinds of missions. Some missions were just go and fight the ships. Others were go and go into orbit around the space station and do a transfer of some cargo. Um, you have a um, a targeting computer 
uh, you can enable tracking so that way it'll automatically switch forward and aft view when an enemy goes forward and behind you. Um, you have hyperwarp, and there's a whole sequence. Like you, you, you go to the map, you select where you want to go, you go into hyperwarp, you switch back to aft view. It even has a 3D long range sensor mode where you can see the uh, the the uh, star field just like sh- shifting around and all that. Huh. And so shoved into that tiny tiny amount of space and those um, blocky graphics with just like one or two sounds ever playing at a time that just sounds like noises like Atari does. There's a, a deep, well-thought-out game. And I was just like, oh, you know, try this. And then 45 minutes later, I'm still playing this game. This game is awesome. Oh, yeah? So um, how close is it to something like Elite? I mean, were, were there ever any space stations or anything like that? Or was yeah. there ever any trading? Uh, there's going into orbit and doing some kind of transfer. Oh, um, Okay. I mean, it's it's very simplistic, but when you look at when the game came out and what it is, right? Th- there's right. a lot to it. Uh, so yeah. that that was Star Raiders. All right, I'll uh, talk about a- another game in a bit, but I figure we should get through more of these notes, more All of right. these tech goodies. Tech goodies. Um. Well, yeah. So I want to talk more about Candy and Colleen. So. Um, the Atari 400 Candy, or uh, and the eight and the 800 Colleen, they were presented in January of 1979 at CES. Um, so they weren't actually called Candy and Colleen later on. We we've established that. So the names were going to be referenced to the memory sizes. So the Atari 400 would have four kilobytes of RAM, and the Atari 800 would have eight kilobytes of RAM. But when they came out, they both had eight kilobytes of RAM. And that was due might... to the memory cost going down. Sorry, I think her name might be Colleen. Did I say Colleen? I did say Colleen a lot. Yeah, well, okay. you know what? It's Colleen now. <laughs> Your name is Colleen now. <laughs> Colleen. Um, so the 800 eventually got 48 a 48 kilobyte RAM expansion card. Um, they both had four joystick ports. The as I mentioned before, the 400 had a membrane keyboard and a single ROM slot, but it actually outsold the 800 two to one. And those joystick ports, you could actually use the 20, the um, the 2600 joysticks were the same uh, same joysticks or same connectors, weren't they? I believe so. I believe so. Uh, since the Atari 2600 had come out in 1977, I believe they used the same exact port. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that. Uh, I wonder what the compatibility of a Sega Genesis controller to one of these would be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, since I know that you can do the opposite. You could put the Atari 2600 joysticks into a Sega, or is it the other way? Oh, boy. Now I'm confused. What? But, really? Uh, yeah, they're, they're compatible. The ports are compatible. Hmm. Anyway, the 800 weighed about 10 pounds, and that was because... Actually, the 400 also weighed 10 pounds. Okay, both machines were actually really heavy. And that was actually because the 400 and 800 models, they were built like tanks. They had to because since the FCC had strong regulations against signal leakage, each machine had to be built with some sort of like a Faraday cage inside. So they were all steel inside and that was to keep all the signals in. And I guess it also made it feel like a really well-built um, tank of a machine. And I guess when they first first came out, it made it seem worth the money, I would imagine. They, they were very sturdy. Um, 
But reviewers praised the 800 for having great documentation and an excellent quote-unquote feel to the keyboard. Not sure about the liquid spill-proof one, but... So after the 800, the 400 and 800, they did have another one of those uh, early series. And I mentioned it's early because after that we go into the XL series and then the XE series. So, but yeah, before that we had the uh, 1000 and the 1000X. They were less expensive to produce due to having less complexity in the build process. They were smaller due to not having to have that thick shielding that we that we just mentioned about the... Uh, okay, let me just say. They were smaller due to not having to have the thick shielding that the FCC mandated at the time. And uh, the 1000 came with 16 kilobytes of RAM and the 1000X came with 64 kilobytes of RAM. These machines, they included a 50-pin port called the Parallel Bus Interface. And it actually, it was a system bus that ran at the same speed as this, the 6502 CPU. What was it used for? It was used for paralleling. <laughs> paralleling. <laughs> so I guess like a general expansion. I guess in more modern machines, we would use parallel ports for printers and scanners. So I guess it was used for general purpose, whatever. But you can use that parallel port for more than just printers. So right, I, right. I meant I th- um, like for, it was yeah. similar to USB and serial ports. Yes. I'm guessing. That. <laughs> All right, so so after that is the um, I actually didn't really much about really read much about that parallel bus interface. I was more interested in that USB SIO interface uh, than this parallel one. So I don't really have that many notes about that. Could I mention a game? Yeah. So another game I tried was Encounter, and I'm I'm really glad that I looked at these because when we did the the Commodore episode, it was like okay, that was nice. This this looks nice. That sounds nice. And the games were good. But none of them really grabbed me. When we did the Amiga episode, it's like, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, the graphics are great. Yeah, the demo scene stuff is great. But none of the... And Lemmings was cool. But none of them immediately grabbed me. There's something about... How dare you? <laughs> <There's>... <laughs> I'm sorry. There's something about these Atari games that just immediately hooked me and kept me playing. And another one, another one that did this was Encounter. With an exclamation point. So I guess when you say the game name, when you, you say the game name, you, you have to, to say it. encounter, encounter, danger, and it's hard to describe, honestly. But I will try. You're in this little ship, and you have a little radar in the center, and you have you're running around in this 3D space where there are these pillars, and you can shoot a ball, and this ball can bounce off these pillars if you shoot them. And you have these little various kinds of enemies coming at you, bobbing and weaving behind the pillars. And some, they'll like bob and weave and stay back and you have to shoot them. And then if you don't, eventually they'll rush you and kill you. Um, there's a, uh, there's another kind that's much more cautious and pretty much just runs away the entire, entire time. But then, then there's one where when it's coming at you, it, it's sounding an alarm. Like things flash red. An alarm starts going off, and you know something is coming at you fast, and you better shoot it, or you're you're just gonna die. And when you do get hit, everything goes crazy, rainbow kaleidoscope, and you're just gone. And after a few times of that, I was scared. I was sweating. That sound meant okay, death is coming. And the best part about these games, with the exception of the LucasArts ones, because even back then they were, they were like, look at our logo, look at our logo, unskippable, look at our logo. The majority they start of these right games. Away. Hmm. Did they start right away as soon as you turn it they on? They started right away, and a common thing with them was if you messed up, just hit the start key. Game starts over immediately. 
like, nope, messed up, start over. Nope, messed up, start over. Just, just a quick cut jump back to the beginning of the game. How would that work with Star Raiders? I mean, would it just send you back to the beginning of the game? So you would keep hitting start, and each time you hit start, it would change the difficulty level and, yeah, start you back at the beginning of the game. Wow. Was uh, Actually, did you have, in any of these games, were there any save functions? Nope. Okay. So one of those, uh, so it would have to be, a, what, a single playthrough game to beat it? Uh, sing, beat it at a single sitting kind of thing? Yeah, hope, but I mean... Hope your big brother doesn't come and push the start button. <laughs> pretty much. I mean, that that was early gaming. Some of you just played until you survived. Star Raiders was just always a random assortment of missions. You would just go through and play through the missions until you beat them and then do it again. But the gameplay was such that it didn't get old quickly. Yeah, there was some innovation going on back then. Uh, some really great uh, games that were coming out that really... Um, I don't want to use the word again. Innovative. <laughs> but well, yeah. There were no uh, there were no preconceived notions about what a game should be. And so all of them were really unique. And going back and playing them now is refreshing, especially in a now where games are defined by microtransactions and DLC and now the new thing is uh four pay loot crates to get the godly items more pay to win garbage. <laughs> it's like yeah, uh Let's just go as retro as retro can be and just go back to, they don't know what works, so they're just coming up with the best ideas they possibly can, and they're all, this is different, this is different, this is cool, this is different, and Encounter was definitely one of those. Mm, cool. Yeah, it doesn't really fit into, it doesn't really seem like it fits into any of the categories, like platformer, first-person shooter, et cetera, et cetera. Very nice. So now we're going to discuss the XL series. Now, these, these, these machines came out in 1983. And that was a very sad time for uh, for video games and Atari as a whole because that was during the video game crash. And so this machine that came out actually reflects that time. And Atari was just desperate to make money, so they would cut corners. And this machine was no exception. So the 1200XL, it released in winter of 1983. Uh, it came with 64 kilobytes of RAM, which is pretty decent. It had a built-in self-test and a redesigned keyboard with four new function keys. These were all good things. However, they made some very poor design choices. And as I said, Atari was rushing things out. They just wanted to make a quick buck. Uh, during this time, they were losing a lot of money, so they needed to come out with anything and fast. So one of the poor design choices was the 12-volt pin was left unconnected, and only the 5-volt power was available. And that made... Uh, that actually made a few devices stop working. That doesn't sound like a choice. That sounds like an oversight. A production oversight, perhaps, but it just wasn't connected. Um, the unit came with, uh, it included improved video, which provided more chroma for, more colorful, for a more colorful image, but the chrome line was not connected to the monitor port, so it couldn't use that. What is the chrome line? <laughs> I think that's uh, for vibrancy. Like, um, I'm not 100% sure. Wait, so so you're saying it came with the ability to have more colorful video? So they actually built in like like they went and designed and they went they went built the yeah. the ability to have better colors and they just didn't hook it up. They didn't hook it up. What the shit? I know, I know, I know. Um, the arrangement ports of the unit made it difficult to use some joysticks and cartridges. Um, changes to the OS to support new hardware. 
uh, changes were made to the OS to support new hardware, which resulted in compatibility problems with older software. And uh, people like, well, there was a lot of older software that was built for, it was built for the same CPU. Remember, they all used that 6502. And so a lot of the software would work, except their new OS made it incompatible with those uh, with those older uh, programs. And, well, back then, they, the Atari 400 and 800 had a lot of programs built for it. So people that had the 1200XL, they couldn't run all of the new, uh, the old, their older programs. That could cause some, pro- some problems. Um, it was priced at 899 and which meant, which meant that the 800 had become cheaper. And because of the poor design choices, people were thinking that this wasn't really much of an upgrade. It actually was more of a, a retrograde. What's the difference between a retrograde and a downgrade? It's the same. <laughs> I think we should start using the term more. Like, you know, this really feels like a retrograde. Retrograde. I mean, I've I've never called anybody a retrograde before, but I think <laughs> I might I might start doing that. <laughs> <laughs> you have to put a lot of disdain into it. Retrograde. <laughs> I could hear Eleven saying that along with mouth breather. Oh, and don't forget uh, spitballing. Spitballing? Yeah. Go back and watch season one. Mm. Yeah, spitballing. Right. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> the sales of the 800 rose because of the 1200XL. I mean, people were buying the 800 before the... <laughs> yeah, they were buying the 800 before they disappeared. So, so the... Yeah. <laughs> so, how, holy crap, really. So yep. company comes out with a new machine... And it's so bad, it sells yep. more of their old machines. Yes, yes, and that happened. <laughs> and it couldn't happen at a worse time. Have you ever heard of that happening with anything in technology? No, I don't think so. That That's uh, amazing. Yeah, I, I don't think so. It's like, uh, well, this, only, this only reminds me of the new Coke. And people people were buying the old Coke because they didn't like the new Coke. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Could you imagine that meeting? Well, good news and bad news. The good news is sales are up. <laughs> Okay, so I took a quote that I uh, I really liked, and um, it's without a right cartridge slot, expansion slots, or a third and fourth controller jack, it has no standard parallel or RS232 port. The only only substantive price cuts will help its image in any tangible way. Bill Wilkinson, colonist of compute and author of Atari Basic. Harsh. Wait, so they removed two of the Joystick, joystick ports? ports. Yes. So you're you're saying that pretty much one of the first game machines that had f- potentially four player capabilities. Right. The mm-hmm. 400 and 800. Candy Long and before the Super Nintendo came out and said, "New four players." They had it and they removed that. They removed that. Right. Cutting costs. No wonder they failed. So yeah, that was just a sad time for Atari, but uh some good came out of it uh later on. Um, before we go on to the next portion, I would love to talk about another game. And this one's really weird. It's called Rainbow Walker. The premise is, again, it's really hard to describe. I guess it's kind of like Cubert. Um, in Cubert, when you jump on each space, do you wind up, um, I forget, do you have to fill in the colors? Yeah, I don't remember. Well, the premise of this is you're walking along this drab gray path and it's it's kind of pseudo 3d and it scrolls under you you're this little bug-like creature with antenna and 
It really uses the Atari's graphic capabilities really well. And as you hop around, each square, each rectangle you land on becomes colorful. And when you fill them all in, it becomes a rainbow. But as you're trying to fill all these in, making this drab gray world all colorful and rainbow-like, there are these things that are constantly trying to push you off this path that's in the sky. There's clouds everywhere. And they're just generally trying to ruin your day. Sometimes there are things that just that just swoop in and push you down. Sometimes uh, things come in and just straight up kill you. Uh, but when you get them all filled, when you get vertical ra- vertical rows of colors filled in, it rewards you with a lovely little flashing and some sound. And uh, you win each level when you fill in the um, rainbow pathway. And that's the whole game. And it's hard. It's really hard. I, mm. I barely passed a uh, level. Um, it's a really clever concept and it's just a really cool game. So what happens when you, when you complete one of those, when you color it all in, it just takes you to the next level? Yep. Just keep doing it until you die. And how does the challenge increase? Are there more, uh, more obstacles? More monsters, bigger paths, I guess. Um, there are some special squares that make everything freeze and you can just keep bouncing up and down on them to make the enemies uh, stop in their tracks. Interesting. Okay, so some some game mechanics there, probably a little bit of strategy involved to get it all colorful. Cool. So, after that um, fiasco of the 1200XL and people buying the 800 uh, before they disappeared, they're, uh, they're actually, and like I said, this was a really bad time for Atari, there was a price war between good old Jack Trammell Action Jack. and Action Jack from Commodore and Texas Instrument, and that actually affected all the home computer lines at the time, and of course, it also affected Atari. Um, so all of the computer prices were dropping drastically. Tremel he kept lowering the price of his Commodore machines, so TI would follow, and then that would just cause uh, all the other computers to have to follow in order to compete in the market. So let me give you an example. In May 1981. The Atari 800's price was $1,050, but by mid-1983, it was $165, and the 400 was under $150. So... Wow. <laughs> was this yep. before or after uh, Ashton Jack came to Atari? This is before. This is while he was in Commodore. So so you mean that he he was part of the reason why they were struggling, and then he came in to help them out? later on yeah it's almost like he would have you think he did this on purpose so he could go and buy atari computers for cheap (laughs) (laughs) uh you know sabotage yeah i don't know but um definitely i mean from 1981 at 1050 to mid 1983 at 165 dollars that is a huge price difference it's almost almost 90 percent almost i mean you know more like not 90 but yeah that's 80 something percent (laughs) that's in two years i mean you look at uh, look at uh, look at some Macs like uh, look at uh, G4 Cube, one of the uh, cult classics. Mm-hmm. That was I don't know over a thousand dollars when it came out, mm-hmm. and now um, over ten years later, it would still go for about one hundred and sixty-five dollars if or two hundred dollars if it was in good condition. Yeah, but that's that's a long time from when it came out. Yeah, but uh, what I mean is that happened in in two years. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, that's good old Jack. He just decimated that market. I've I've never seen anything like it. I mean, 
this this whole thing, I've I've just never seen anything like it. I, I keep saying that because it's just it's crazy. Um, so Atari did have a solution, and it was to replace a number of the new ICs to take over the functions of many of those remaining in the 1200XL, which made a simpler PCB design and smaller cases to house it. So remember, their focus was to um, cheapen production so they could make more profit. And so they released two machines. Uh, one's a 600XL, and the other one's an 800XL. Now, I really like the 600XL, uh, and actually, uh, Clint Flump, Ugh, I don't know why I said it like that. Clint. Clint. <laughs> yeah. Clint from LGR Video. Uh, Clint from Lazy Game Reviews actually had a uh, YouTube video on the 600XL. And uh, it's excellent. It actually showcases a lot of what the 600XL offers. Um, so the 600 and 800, they were released in 1983. They replaced both the 400 and the 800. They actually looked similar to the 1200XL, but they were smaller. The 600 lacked a front row of memory chips on the PCB, but that actually made the 600 even smaller than the 800. And it actually kind of kind of resembled a um, like a flat Commodore 64. I don't, I don't know. It's hard to describe. But uh, but yeah, it was, it was a small machine, all built in, all in one. Um, really neat machine, actually. And uh, and well, that's what they came out with. So so they could say they were able to compete or at least stay in business. Um, Another interesting thing was actually that the Commodore 64 at the time was outselling Atari computers due to them actually being widely available. And Atari actually had to shift over their production plant to the Far East. So they outsourced their production so they could just keep up with these computer prices. Um, But that actually meant that Atari was having problems competing in the price for and therefore pulled out and priced their units $50 higher than the Commodore VIC-20 and C64. I mean, they just they just couldn't they couldn't compete against uh, Tramiel and and TI. Uh, so yeah, it was it was really bad. I mean, that MOS chip, the sixty five hundred two, Jack Tramiel bought that plant and made it part of Commodore. So they actually didn't have that cost either. So at the time, and actually this couldn't have come at a worse time. Like I keep saying, Atari was losing millions a day. Atari sold about seven hundred thousand computers in nineteen eighty four, but the Commodore sold two million. That's nuts. I don't know if you want to cover another game. Uh, I'm about to go through the post Tramil, you know, apocalypse, the Tramil apocalypse. Yeah, I would love to talk about another game. I'm going to talk about one I didn't like. So while the Atari was the first line of machines to have coprocessors for graphics and sound, which gave it uh, capabilities um, previously before never seen in a computer, after a while, uh, games that came out later, uh, especially arcade games that were ported back to the Atari just were not as good. And one of those was Donkey Kong. I mean, mm. it, it played alright, but the sound was just sickly. It ran slower. It, it, it didn't look as good. Uh, it just... You could tell it was a port. It almost felt like a pity port. Huh. Uh, it wasn't as bad as the Atari 2600's Pac-Man, was it? No. Um, and it was still plenty playable. I mean, everything was there, but it just felt all, I don't know. It, okay. It felt janky. So the controllers, they, they weren't good. The... the gameplay was fine, but when you're used to the arcade, or in my case, when you're used to the NES version, which was on par with the arcade, mm. just the Atari version just didn't hold up. So after a while, it's 
graphics and, and sound, sound capabilities were pretty limited, especially in comparison to the Commodore SID chip and the NES and the NES's sound system. So I'm actually a big fan of the Commodore SID chip. I, I don't know if I I actually think I said that in my, uh, oh, yeah, my we, other episode. We got we, we were raving about it. Yeah, and um, and I I'm actually still going to stand by that today. Um, I don't think that the Atari Pokey chip, even though it was a very capable sound processor, um, it wasn't the same. It's not like that raspy SID chip on the Commodore 64, in my opinion. I have a sample of the capabilities of the Atari Pokey chip, you said it was? Pokey. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go and get it to where I can play it for all of us and for the recording. The viewers at home. This is from this is the introduction from the Atari 800 game called Draconis, which is a platformer where you're a dragon and you run around and you avoid obstacles. All right. So what do you think? Awesome. Um, I still like the SID chip more, but it's awesome. Agreed. SID chip is better. <laughs> because the SID chip, uh, even though that was really, really cool, really, really awesome music, the SID chip would have just been like, oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that, that sounded really good. I, 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 uh, thanks for sharing, Chris. I think that um, awesome. part of the problem, though, was the Pokey chip really couldn't play sounds and music at the same time. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm guessing. I didn't see a s in all the games I played. None of them did that. I actually have some facts about the Pokey audio chip on the Atari 8-bit computers, and that's that they had four audio channels, and there were four 8-bit channels, but they could be combined to have you know either two 16-bit channels, or you know you can mix and match uh, different ones in whatever way you wanted to. Uh, so that that was uh, that was kind of interesting in the way that uh, the Pokey chip did that. You could have uh, two of the audio channels that could be combined for more accurate sound. Um, so you could have no. I've already mentioned that. Man, there's a lot of stuff here. Yeah. Um, so the name Pokey actually means potentiometer and keyboard. So you get uh, Pokey out of it, and they're actually the two I/O devices that the Pokey that Pokey interfaces with. The potentiometer is a mechanism used by the paddle. The Pokey chip, as well as its dual and quad-core versions, were used in many Atari coin-op arcade machines of the 80s, including Centipede and Millipede. The the channels you're talking about, do you, um, do you know what kind of channels they were? 
my only exposure to early 8-bit um, audio systems is the the uh, Game Boy uh, from making music there. And I know that there's four channels there. There's two pulse channels, one wave channel, and one noise channel. I'm curious if the channels you're talking about have dedicated capabilities or if they're all just general purpose channels that they use. Well, I looked that part up, and according to Wikipedia, it says it actually has a timer, and it produces a random number generator for generating acoustic noise, as well as random numbers, and maskable interrupts. Um, I don't know a whole lot about audio chips and audio processors to be able to fully explain that, but a little bit of Wikipediaing. Wikipedia says a random number generator is a generation of sequence of numbers or symbols that cannot... Okay, that's not the explanation. <laughs> uh, let's see here. It actually doesn't go into that. Oh, well. Huh. Yeah. Sorry about that. I just I just remember reading that about the uh, four audio channels all being 8-bit, but you could combine two uh, to make 16-bit, so you could have two 16-bits. You know, and or one one sixteen bit, one eight bit, one sixteen bit, two eight bits, etc. However, they did it. It sounded pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But the switch um, is better. I still need to buy that shirt. <clears throat> so afterwards, what happened was that Jack Tramiel actually was fired from Commodore, and that was that company that he helped build, that he actually built. Um, so Atari was in trouble at that time. They were losing money left and right, and Warner Communications, which were the uh, owners of Atari at the time, they wanted to sell off their computer division. So they went and uh, sold it off to good old Jack Tramiel, who was looking to get back into the market and probably make Commodore pay for what they had done. So one of the first things that uh, Tramiel did when he joined uh, Atari Computers was, uh, and this is what I call the Tramiel-ocalypse, or the Tramiel-apocalypse, he canceled prototypes left and right. Um... And he, he actually made the entire division focus more on the on developing the 68,000-based Atari ST units, which were uh, later units that came out. So we have a list here of prototypes and uh, vaporware that just never made it out because Tramiel canceled them all. We have the 1400XL, 1200XL, but with a, with a PBI, a Freddy chip, built-in modem, and the Vortex SC01 speech synthesis chip. That was canceled. The 1450 XLD, it was basically a 1400XL with a 5 and a quarter disk drive and an expansion bay for a second 5 and a quarter uh, disk drive. It was uh, coding Dynasty. It made it to pre-production, but it actually got abandoned by Tremel. And uh, then you got the 1600, uh, codenamed Shakti, Shakti, and it was a Shakti, Shakti, and uh, it was a dual processor system with a 6502 and an 8186. So, oh, dual proc. Hmm, yeah. That would have been compatible with all that software from the from the uh from the PCs, the IBM PCs that were coming out. Uh there was another one that's the 1850XL. It was codenamed Mickey and that was going to use the Lorraine chip, which actually was a custom chip in the uh it was a custom uh, chip on the Amiga that was responsible for graphics. That would have been really neat to see. Would have been, yeah. So during the time, less and less software was being produced for Atari 8-bit computers, and mostly due to software piracy with its Happy Drive. So actually, happy a Happy Drive? Yeah, Happy Drive. Oh. Like, like Happy Juice. 
Happy drives are a series of disk drive enhancements for the Atari 8-bit and Atari ST computer families produced by a small company called Happy Computers. Happy Computers is most notable, uh, most noted for the add-in boards of the Atari 810 and the Atari 1050 disk drives, which achieves a tremendous speed improvement for reading and writing and the ability to back up floppies. Basically, it made copying disks very quick and easy. Were there ever any units that you could add multiple floppy drives to? I mean, uh, to us, that just seems like a like a basic thing. Like, of course, you can have two floppy drives. Of course, you can copy floppies. Was this not a thing that was? I mean, this is a third-party tool that is doing what I, we just took for t- take I, for granted. I, I, now? I believe at the I believe at the time you had to daisy chain them. So you'd buy an external floppy drive. And then you daisy chain it to the other floppy drive, so that's how you get to. They didn't. It, it wasn't actually built into the machine. And I'm guessing it didn't let you copy with the tools you had by default. Well, it seems like the happy the happy drives. They were external drives as well, and um, but they ju- they would just copy disk really fast. Hmm. It must have been a, 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 a somehow it would copy all the sectors of the floppy disk drives very fast, or the floppy disks very fast. Uh, I did look into it, and I couldn't find any more information on how the happy drives worked. Should I mention another game? Yeah, we're about to get into the last part, uh, the 65XE and 130. Those were the last two actual 8-bit machines, and they were sold all the way to 92. So, All right, then I have another game for you. And I didn't play it very much because I was terrible at it. But it is noteworthy in... It's graphics. Uh, the game is called Rescue on Fractalus, again, with another exclamation point. So, Rescue on Fractalus! Fractalus! What's impressive about it, about it is it somehow displays whole mountainous terrains on the Atari system. Uh, it's done with, you know, just a simple brown landscape and series of dots that simulate 3D. But it feels like you're flying through an actual 3D mountainous space. And you, you run around... You, you fly around, and you rescue astronauts, I guess, that are stuck on this place. And every once in a while, things try to kill you, and you fight them. But visually, it's extremely impressive. Um, you have a whole cockpit, you, and you're, you're flying around through what looks like mountains. And at the time, there was nothing like it. I mean, it, it feels like a good flight sim. And something else I should mention, these games ran pretty fast. I mean... The gameplay was smooth. A lot of pioneering work was done in various genres that we take for granted and various styles of gameplay that we take for granted now. And that was definitely one of the first good flight sims, I would say. I'm taking a look at it now, and it does look really impressive, actually, for the time. The cockpit view and everything. Yeah, I even, um, I'm impressed even by the, the amount of colors and everything on, on screen at once. Very nice. That was one of those uh, LucasArts games, I believe. Okay. Actually, I'm not sure about that. It says here a classic Lucasfilm game. Yes, Lucasfilm game. Mm-hmm. And those Lucasfilm games, you had to look at that. You had to look at that starting logo for a long time. Do-do-ding. They had a whole intro that came with them, and you had to do it every time. At least it was better than looking at all the logos for every single company that was involved, like we do today. I think that's all I have for games. Okay. Well, um, we actually have this one. These la- actually last two. Two machines that Atari 8-bit computers, the that the Atari 8-bit computer lines had, um, and they were actually the 65XE and the 130XE. They looked visually like the Atari ST computers, 
Because now they're being sold side by side. So you had the Atari ST computers and you had the 8-bit computers. So the 65XE looked visually like the Atari ST computers. They came with 64 kilobytes of RAM and they were functionally equivalent to the 800XL. The 130XE had 128 kilobytes of memory and had the enhanced cartridge interface, which was an, a modified version of the parallel bus interface that we discussed earlier. The last machine, and actually these were all the way to, to about 1992, uh, they did actually come out with one other machine. It wasn't really a computer per se. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't something that was designed to replace the 65 or 130XE, but it was more about, uh, it, was, it was meant to be more of a console, and it's actually the XE game system. And all it was was a repackaged 65XE, but it, it was made to look more, as, uh, more, more like a console than it was a computer. And um, it was actually compatible with almost all of Atari 8-bit software and hardware. So you had this console that could run all, almost all of the Atari 8-bit software. Um, you know, it's like having running a word processor on a console. It's just weird, but this that, one did it. That is weird. Yeah, and actually the XE game system was notable because it had all these colorful buttons in the top. They were big round buttons. It had all these colorful buttons. Uh, they actually did include a keyboard, and you can buy a, a joystick. Games would load on the top, and they had a, they also had a zapper that came with it as well. But um, but yeah, full blown Atari 8-bit computer, right there. So but yeah, sadly um, in 1992, Atari dropped all the remaining support for the 8-bit computers. Um, and after that, it was claimed, I believe, in 2004 or 2006. It's claimed that the Atari released the 8-bit chipset to the public domain. So that was uh, pretty much it for the Atari 8-bit computer line. Killed by the Commodore and other machines that were released at the time. And so I, I, I say that they had a, a pretty long life, though. Pretty long life for a single machine. Yeah, it was a good run. Yeah, good run. Good run. Uh, the graphics kind of reminded me of uh, the early NES graphic. Not quite, quite... Like the early NES game graphics, um, Super Mario Brothers and things like that, but not the later versions, not the later Mario, Mario Three and things like that. You know what the most important lesson we learned was? Um, I don't know that the SID chip is better. SID chip is better. That's all you need to know about yeah. this entire podcast. I say that the SID chip could replace an entire Atari Eight Big Computer. <laughs> <laughs> I did have one more game uh, called yeah? Master of the Lamps. And you're this guy, and you fly around on a flying carpet, and you fly through these diamonds, and you have to bob and weave and get through them, otherwise you fail. And then after that, you have to do a, a little puzzle. Uh, sometimes the puzzle will be a, um, a musical puzzle. Sometimes it'll be uh, some other type of thing, and it was just puzzle fly, puzzle fly, puzzle fly. And it was just really neat and quirky and unique and fun. Really, I mean, it, it's awesome you did all this research, but you need to play these games, Zero. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, somebody and the uh, the emulator runs everywhere. I have it running on my DOS machine. Oh yeah, but can you run it on your Game Boy? <laughs> no. <laughs> so it's not like Doom. You can't run it on your Game Boy. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hang on, hang on. Doom, Atari, eight hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah uh, no. Uh, but there is a Wolfenstein 3D port. Oh, close enough. Huh, that's pretty cool. I kind of want to play this now. It looks horrible. 
Yeah, I'm uh, definitely going to play more games. That that good, huh? I mean, it seems like you had more fun with the Atari 8-bit than the Commodore. I definitely had more fun with it than the uh, Commodore. I guess because I started with Star Raiders, which was just a fantastic game. Hmm. I'm going to have to give it a try. You've, uh, you've convinced me. So I want you to see that there was a Doom, or is a Doom, for the Commodore 64. Does that count? I mean, it uses the same chip. It's called Mood instead of Doom. Doom backwards. Huh. Mm-hmm. Weird. Uh, well, that's all I have for Atari 8-bit. Same. I'm I'm uh, kind of bummed. I'm too young to ever have a, ever have experienced it. I mean, I guess I could have. I was ten in 1992, but my first computer was in 1993, and that was a 486. So, yeah. Yeah. I um I agree. It would have been nice, but uh, I wasn't exposed to it. So, but I'm definitely glad I'm learning about it now, and I'm glad I'm able to share it with everybody else. My learning experience. And that's really cool that you got to find some really neat games. Them games, though. Them games. You need to play those games. Awesome. I I will. I think you should research a little bit more, and that should be getting the emulator going. It's it's super simple. You get the emulator, you get the ROM images, you play some games. The games are fun. Okay. I'll definitely you can't do call that. your research done until you play some games. Challenge accepted. All right. Well, that's all I have for this show. Chris, where can they find us? Oh yeah, that. So if anyone has any feedback or input on topics they would like for us to discuss or corrections they have or uh, positive feedback, that'll be great too. We can be contacted on our Facebook page. You can look for Fork Bomb Podcast on Facebook or you can tweet us at the Twitters at Fork Bomb Podcast or you can send us an email to ForkBombPodcast at gmail.com you can find us on itunes on uh, everything else but stitcher radio <laughs> working on it thank you for the reminder I will, I will get stitcher going no problem you can also find us on friendster and myspace and orchid what <laughs> <laughs> let's let's include on there on joomla wordpress uh you know um <laughs> plenty of fish <laughs> you too can date for bomb podcast <laughs> tinder <laughs> very eligible all right if Have you find night, us on tinder everyone. swipe right <laughs> good night <laughs> good night <laughs>